Well, hello again. I, I want to begin with your voice. Not, none of you are going to be put on the spot to speak, but you will be asked to raise your hand. And I'm a, I'm a guy who occasionally asks you to do that, but you have to vote in this one. There are two kinds of people. The people who see the glass as half full and the people who see the glass as half empty. No moral judgment. How many of you are glass half empty people? Yeah, yeah, so you, you look and you, I mean, I come, I, I married into a house of lawyers, you look and see what could go wrong, right? And, and if the glass is half full, it's barely that, right? <laughs> How many of you are glass half full people? Yeah, it's, it's getting fuller every second, it's, right? And, and in this world, we're glad to have both for reasons that we're going to talk about today because there is this malady that has taken up residence among us in our time called toxic positivity. Have you heard this phrase? Toxic positivity. Now, there's a whole school of psychology called positive psychology that was born, I think, in the, in the 70s by some research at University of Penn, and it's done all kinds of good. It's moved us off the couch and blaming our mom and dad all the time over to other ways of seeing the path forward, right, in, in psychiatric care. But sometimes that positive psychology gets a little too much positivity. Right? It's when you, you say to someone, I've had a terrible day, and they say, but I bet there was something good in it. <laughs> right? It's an always look on the bright side of life thing, and, and worse than what I just said, you, you, uh, you tell somebody about a, a hard diagnosis, and they immediately want to flip it. Right? They immediately want to, and I, I am sometimes... Uh, guilty of this. I want to get to what could be better next, and I sometimes rush there. It's called toxic positivity. Now, it could be also called optimism. Right? Optimism. Everything's going to go the way that we plan. Everything is going to get better. It's just everything's going to get more optimal. And in the history of the Western uh, culture and philosophy, a time during which this debate was taking place was about the time when the colonies, in the colonies that became the United States, were designing on a napkin in uh, pubs in Boston and, and in Virginia. Um, in the mid-1700s, a philosophy reigned in Europe uh, that was optimistic. Leibniz, the great uh, Wilhelm uh, uh, Leibniz, the great German philosopher, when answering for the, the presence of God in the world, when doing theodicy, kind of doing a defense of God's existence, he looked and when people said, but there's stuff that's wrong with the world and you're saying that a good God exists and is all powerful, and he made a tragic error. Leibniz said, well, if God is all powerful and all good, this must be the best world possible. Right? How do you feel about that if you're running into a bad diagnosis or or you're looking at a tragic uh, natural disaster. Well, Voltaire, the French philosopher who was sarcastic and, and uh, loved to parody and pillory, uh, wrote a book in 1759 called Candide, 
On Optimism is the subtitle. And he was answering Leibniz, and he pictured this Candide character who thought everything was the best it could possibly be. He, he kind of walked a little above the earth, wasn't recognizing all the bad things happening around him. In that book, Candide, or, or um, Voltaire, says the 1755 earthquake in Lisbon was a part of what that God made, and it turned out that as the destruction reigned, the nunneries and the monasteries fared very badly, but the brothels did well. <laughs> right? it, was, it was Voltaire's way of, say, way of saying, it doesn't look like God controls every detail, at least not with a moral structure, and they went back and forth, but he couldn't stand the optimism that said everything's just right. right? Now, we don't, how many of you read Voltaire yesterday or the day before? We don't do a lot of that. Anybody Leibniz yesterday? No. Um, we do know the term Pollyanna. You know this term Pollyanna? Pollyanna was a novel in the early 1900s, became a movie in 1960. Pollyanna is this girl with gumption who introduces a pretty stricken community to Glad. She had, had, a, she had been an orphan. She had had a tough childhood. She ended up raised by a, a, a very negative person, Aunt Polly. But she somehow came up with, she's a study in positive psychology, she come, somehow came up against all that grain with a happy and glad way of doing life. And actually the novel and the, and, the, and the movie never quite get to telling her she's wrong about that. But in American culture, is, is Pollyanna a compliment? No, most of all, we do it pejoratively, right? Oh, you're so Pollyannish. Right? It means you dot your eyes with little hearts or smiles, right? It means, it means you always want to look on the bright side of life. Today we're going to ask, coming off last week, one of you mentioned in the, in the time before we gathered this morning, one of you mentioned how good you felt when you left last week because we talked about the Spirit and all the glories that Paul points out about receiving the Holy Spirit. We get to bear the fruit of the Spirit we get to be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? All those. We get to receive the gifts of the Spirit, so we're good at different things, and it makes a whole good when we bring those gifts together. We get to get help in prayer. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit, remember, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then fourth, we get the glory of being in community through the Spirit, which means we can have people praying for us and we can be praying for one another. It was all good news last week, right? And so you may have left like this person did, just feeling a little better about the world. That won't last long this morning. I'm teasing. But we need to ask, is Paul Pollyannish? Because if last week was, you know what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Ta-da, everything's great. Spirit, spirit, spirit. Is Paul a little too glass half full? Is he denying the realities of everyday life that you and I know, the diagnosis and the disaster and the shooting and all of the things that we know weigh us down, whether personally or collectively. Our question today is, is Paul Pollyannish? But there's a bigger, wider, important thing here. Is Christianity Pollyannish? 
Is it unable to get to those places in us that don't work yet? Is it unable to get in those places in our life where things aren't as they should be? Is Christianity able to cover our whole lives? And so, in order to do that, let's go to the scripture of the morning, and, and we're going to start with a scripture from the end of last week's passage. Remember, each, each time I preach, I do a sort of previously on the West Wing. Last week, we were looking at Romans 8 and the verses leading up to verse 17. Here's how Paul ends it, and he calls on baptism as the setting. Because when, when somebody was baptized in early Christianity, they came out of the water breathless, and the first word they spoke was Abba, which is Aramaic for daddy or father. In other words, I am now a child of God, right? And they spoke it breathlessly, and all of them remember it. So he says, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So far, we're in positivity world, right? We're in optimism, we're in uh, positive psychology, but look what happens after the dash. If, in fact, we suffer with Christ so that we may also be glorified with him. It's the first time we get a minor key in chapter 8. It's the first time that we're introduced to the fact that Paul knows that other things go on than just feeling good about having the Holy Spirit. Today's passage picks up where this one left off. So let's listen together for the word of God as it comes to us from Romans 8, 18 through 25. He starts, and notice how this connects with what just happened in the, in the verse before. I consider that the sufferings of the present time, Greek, the now time, the sufferings of the now time are not worthy comparing, uh, worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. So if last time was, how do we walk in the spirit now? This week, we're leaning toward a glory that is to come. But let's see how Paul does it. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is a little surprising, we'll get back to it, but who are our partners in suffering our everyday woes? All creation. Paul says that creation is suffering and also longing for that whatever is next. See the last line? We'll obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I don't know if you think of creation that way, we'll get back to it in a little bit, but for Paul, it's all tied together. The whole cosmos is leading toward whatever is next. Next slide. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains right up till now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, still groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Next slide. For in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So is Paul Pollyannish? It might seem so. I quoted the things we talked about last week, but it's going to come in just a couple verses after the ones we just read. He's going to say, all things work together for good for those who, who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. I mean, if having the Spirit is great, now we get all things work together for good. And it was seven chapters ago that he talked about creation. Now, I've been focusing on a little part of creation that is just outside Liverpool, England. Um, those of you who know the code know that the British Open is this weekend, right? It's, it's happening even as we speak. And on that little patch of land, the best golfers in the world have been going at it. Uh, can we get it? Yeah. Is that beauty or what? <laughs> little flag there in all of creation. And in Romans 1, Paul says, everything we need to know about God his eternal power and divine nature are understood through what God has made. Right? Creation, he says, sings out the glory of God, sings out even the attributes of God, eternal power and, and divine nature. It would seem, if we just skated across the surface, that Paul is Pollyanna. He brings good news in chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the good news, right? Uh, for it is the power of God for salvation for everybody who has faith. In later in chapter one, he says, the beauty of a golf course or of that stream or of those mountains or of a gorilla lying down with a deer and playing or whatever you see on Facebook movies, um, the, the goodness of creation speaks the goodness of God. We've had last week, the spirit lights up our lives. We had, he helps us with prayer and we had all things work together for good. You could get the idea that Paul's Pollyannish. But then you get those 15 mentions of the word suffering in the passage we're working on today. Now, the passage is about heaven in a way. When you think about heaven or you think about afterlife, what kinds of things happen in your head? Because if you're like, when, you know, kids, when they think, what does heaven look like? Think, all my friends are there and you get ice cream every day. I think, are there golf courses in heaven because I'm an avid golfer? I don't know what yours is, but we tend to think, what is it like when we get there? How, how cool is it going to be when we don't have to deal with what's going on now and we're simply there? What's it going to look like? And we get pretty imaginative when we think about it. But notice that Paul barely gets to the subject. I consider that the suffering of the present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Paul barely gets to that thought of a glory that is to come without mentioning our current suffering. Paul wants the Romans, Paul wants us to know that he gets us. How many of you had a flawless week? Think about it for a second. Everything go right? If it did, talk to me after. But if we go two weeks, you probably didn't have no flaws. We live in a broken world, as, the, as Paul has it, that we as creation, along with all the rest of creation, groan within ourselves, awaiting the revelation of the children of God. Right? Paul can't go to eternal glory without recognizing with us 
that the now time is not as good as it gets. That's the first thing to, to realize here. Because if it were just everything's going well, there wouldn't be this leaning forward. Right? It's, it's funny, there are, there are two ways of doing this in Christianity over the, over the centuries. One is we get too earthly, we get too earthly comfortable to consider the glory of what's next. The other is we get too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. We tend to be one or the other of those. Paul doesn't let us go to either of those extremes. If we sit with him, we see what's hard in the present. We see what's hard in the present and we long for the future because that will be better. But we don't escape the present in order to be in the future. Do you see the difference? We don't sit on our roofs and wait. First Thessalonians 5. Paul's dealing with a young church. They don't quite get it yet. And he has told them someday Jesus is coming back and a bunch of them have stopped everything and are just waiting. Right? And so he writes to them in the fifth chapter. He says, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. In other words, dig in. We are in this world. We're solidly in this world, even as we know this world is not as good as it gets. And you know who else knows that this world is not as good as it gets? The donkey and the rabbit and the mountain and the river. Paul expands our minds beyond what you and I usually think about. When we think about heaven, we think of a bunch of people getting up there. Don't you? When I was in a first-year philosophy class in college, our rebel philosophy professor, Arthur Roberts, stood up in front of a room full, Christian college, a room full of about 50 evangelical undergraduates. We had all come to Jesus through Young Life or through our church or whatever way. We were excited about going to school and having these professors help us along. And he got up in front of us and said, uh, how, do you, how do you feel about going to heaven? And we all said, yes, we love going to heaven. And he looked us in the eye and said, if my horse can't go, I ain't going. You've got 50 stunned, scandalized young Christians, because we had never thought about that. We had only thought, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? We had thought about the human aspect of the afterlife. Here Paul says the fate of all the cosmos is in God's hand. God is going to free us all from the corruption of, of the present world. That's bigger, folks. It's not some sort of pantheism or, or it's not some sort of, oh, we're very romantic about our animals, so I need my pet to go with me. This is God saying, I made them and I still love them, just as he feels about us. Paul is aware that all creation is in the soup together and all creation somehow will be redeemed together. Now, I don't know if that means my dog Watson gets to go and live with me there. I don't know what it looks like. In fact, if you look at the passages in the New Testament that describe heaven, there's a lot of different pictures, and none of them tell me whether I'll have pets. But I, I think it's worth recognizing that the picture of what gets redeemed is bigger than just humanity. God cares about the whole thing. Because God made it. And remember in, in Genesis 1, remember what God said? You know, that's good. About each part of it. But now let's get to Genesis 3. Because this is where things took a, took a turn. 
There's a tree and an apple and, and two people who have had it really good. They've had Edenic glory. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're loving life. They're free to be with God without any encumbrance or distance. Uh, serpent tells them, you know, the fruit on this tree is pretty good, and they give it all up for the apple. Paul is saying that the world that kind of fell, the world that is less than it ought to be, will someday be brought back to Eden, and so will we. It's pretty good, right? So is Paul Pollyannish? No. He recognizes the suffering that we have, and he recognizes that it's not as good as it gets, and he still won't let us just wait for what's next. He still says a lot of good redemptive work happens here. So that's sort of the first thing I want to take from this passage with you, is Paul is realistic about the human condition and leaning forward to a time when the human condition will be redeemed. He's realistic about how creation is still under something, under curse, and he's gloriously interested in how it will someday be redeemed, the freedom of the glory of the children of God at the same time as the freedom of creation. That's the first thing here. But the second thing is, I know I saw a couple eyes darken when I seem to think, or when I seem to present optimism as a flaw. How many of you are optimistic and proud of it? I'm optimistic and kind of proud of it, right? I like that I look on the bright side of life. I know that it can go to excess, but I like that. But I want to clarify a difference in Paul's language from that, something that instructs me at least and maybe some of the people who raised your hands. Optimism is a belief that the optimal is just around the corner. But sometimes it denies the harshness that is here and starts to interpret now in the way that Candide does, in the way that Pollyanna might be accused of doing. Hope, on the other hand, is the term Paul likes. Paul loves the term hope. For Paul, hope is living in the presence with a realism that is almost painful. Living in the presence, recognizing that we get cancer. Non-Christians get cancer, Christians get cancer. That, that the earth is not yet redeemed, realizing that natural disasters come, that people do bad things, that freedom allows a Hitler or an Idi Amin, that, that all of these things are a part of the world that we live in, but we are not hopeless. It's not everything's great. It's we hope for better things tomorrow. Do you see the difference between optimism and hope? Hope feels the difficulties of the present and leans toward the glories of the future with faith, right? Hope. Hope for something we don't see yet, but something we long to see, right? So if the first thing is our fate is all tied and our experience is all tied up with creation and Paul sees all of it leaning forward toward an X, the second thing is that lean is better termed hope in the theological language of Paul and of the New Testament generally. We hope for what we have not seen because we believe in a God who is able to bring it about. Optimism sometimes doesn't include that God piece. 
Third, let's not hang with the, let's not hang with the suffering too long, right? It would be a, I mean, I'm glad people left all walking on air last week. It would be a, a shame if we stayed with suffering. And uh, Steve Martin used to do a routine that on the banjo, he was illustrating that the banjo song is usually happy. He says, oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder, right? <laughs> we aren't going to leave ourselves there. We want to recognize the realities of our present world. Paul takes us there realistically and makes us look at the fact that things aren't as good as they get, even with the Holy Spirit, even with Christ as our salvation. But he doesn't leave us there. He describes the glorious freedom of the children of God that lies ahead. Now, he doesn't get down to whether we get to take our pets or not. He doesn't even describe what we'll do there yet. In another place, he says, death has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. In another place, he says, Jesus will come and take us away. There, there are ways that Paul gets at this. But in a way, in order to get bigger picture of that freedom of the glory of children of God, we have to put Paul in the context of the rest of the people who write in the New Testament, the rest of the things that we get as scripture. And let's think about those for a second. You're the thief on the cross. You're the thief on the cross next to Jesus on the day that Jesus is executed, the dark day, the Good Friday, right? And you look over at him and you say, this guy's, this guy's good. We deserve our punishment. But he doesn't deserve his punishment. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus says right in that spot? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. Eden revisited. Jesus pictures Lazarus, the poor man who, who suffers at the rich man's gate, relishing the bosom of Abraham, connectedness to the fathers, connectedness to the tradition. Revelation. Revelation runs out in many pictures, and a couple of you approached me before worship because you knew we were going to be talking a little bit about the next, and you said, well, I remember this passage from Revelation. Revelation brings it on the next. I want to I remember with you that John, who is in no good straits as he writes, the, the seer, the prophet John, is in exile on Patmos. He can't be with his churches, and he's a pastor guy. He's suffering the distance. He's suffering the fact that he can't worship with people he's used to worshiping with. He's suffering all that, and he writes them letters, and then he just starts picturing the, the vision that God has given him for what comes next. And there we have in, in Revelation 7 a picture of every tribe and every nation. Now remember, he's been put on Patmos by the leaders of one big tribe, the Roman Empire. But he's a part of another sub-tribe, the Jewish people and especially the Jewish Christian people. And he knows there are many others, there are many languages and voices and peoples and nations. And he sits on Patmos and he pictures heaven and he says, every tribe and every nation gathered before the throne singing to the Lamb. Right? Worship as a part of what's next. And then he gets further into the book and he says, behold, the city of God is with people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. Right? They will hunger no more neither thirst anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, 
that glorious freedom of the children of God that Paul mentions, the redemption of all creation that Paul mentions is going to be sweet. It's going to be lovely. It's going to be Edenic. It's going to be paradisial. It's going to have these walls that divide us, the ones we run into every day, whether political or ethnic or, or just personal. These walls that divide us are going to come down, and every tribe and every nation is going to sing together to God. We're going to stop having those bad diagnoses. We're going to stop losing that sister or cousin or friend or, or brother. For the former things will pass away. Paul is looking forward with us to a brilliant next. He just wants us to know that he knows we aren't there yet. He also wants us to know that soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Amen.